Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 25 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Ari Rosenbaum, who is the managing partner of the Rosenbaum Law Firm, PC, where he focuses on helping clients reduce their plan costs, facilitate administration, and limit their fiduciary liability. As a former ERISA attorney at several TPA firms and law firms, he's a well-known industry commentator about the retirement industry and ERISA trends with a specific focus and passion for third-party administration and compliance. And he has a great reputation for being a very straight shooter. He's also a unique marketer and baseball fan known for hosting his That 401k conference at major league ballparks around the country. On this episode, Ari and I discuss how M&A is impacting the industry in general, including TPA firms, what advisors should look for in TPA firm partners and how they can be better partners to TPAs when mutually serving clients, the importance of sticking with what you know as a service provider, how accepting ownership and taking responsibility is one of the most important things service providers can do to cement client relationships, especially when things go wrong, why plan sponsors need to read their contracts when hiring service providers, why you decided to launch that 401k conference, and much more. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Ari Rosenbaum, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. We were prepping right before. And it looks like you've got about 400 different board games behind you. Sounds like that's more of a family interest. You said you don't really like board games all that yeah. much, but everyone loves them. I want to say half of them are still wrapped in plastic. I, I, at one point I had all these different versions of Monopoly, like Seinfeld Monopoly and Beatles Monopoly. I'm like, I'm not, you know, my kids were not old enough. I, I said, let me sell it on eBay and you, you make money on that. <laughs> right, right. I'll have, to see, I'll have to see what's, you know, maybe I could sell. I don't know. Well, thanks for being a guest and looking forward to our discussion today. I think we're going to cover a bunch of different topics. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, obviously, you know, you've got a, a high profile within the industry. I kind of view you as as a one of the truth tellers in the industry and have always really appreciated your perspectives and the way that you kind of approach the business. A lot of times you'll talk about things that that, quite frankly, the industry doesn't love to talk about, but I think you always bring a really unique perspective. So I think we're going to have a good discussion. Why don't we just start and, and maybe share a little bit about kind of your journey and your background and, and how you got to where you are with your practice? Yeah. People always ask me all the time, how do you start out as an risk attorney? And the joke is that's the first job I got. I graduated with an LLM from Boston University. I get an email about a TPA shop in Syosset, New York that needed an risk attorney. I didn't know what a TPA was which is funny when you've studied ERISA and studied non-qualified plans at Boston University, got the job starting out at $35,000 a year, you know, and, and when, when you're living at home and you're 26 years old, that's a whole lot of money. So I was there for like four and a half years. And then I moved on to a company called Geller Group, Geller and Winds. And I was there for another almost five years. And then I worked for two different law firms within three years. And uh, that was not a fun experience. And I started my own practice in April 2010. Just had the dream of, you know, taking the knowledge that I had as a TPA attorney, taking a lot of what I liked as being a TPA attorney and, and putting it into my own practice where I could represent clients, charge them a flat fee, and deal with the things that I just didn't like working for law firms. You know, the fancy offices, high, you know, costs, the high infrastructure that they had kind of stripping it away. Um, when I was working at that law firm and I, I was going to leave, I talked to another law firm about joining up. And I, my salary at the time, I think was $150,000. And this law firm says, you know, in order to pay you $150,000, you have to bring in $400,000 worth of business. And I said to him, if I could bring in $400,000 of business, why do I need you? <laughs> you're going to take $400,000 of the money I brought in and you're going to Take it all out, and I'm, you're going to give me 150. That, that doesn't seem right. So that's why I started my own practice 11 years ago. What was the biggest challenge that you had, kind of leaving the kind of call it the corporate world? 
and and striking out on your own. And I think that'll lead into, you know, one of the things you, I think you've you've built your practice around is you've been good from the marketing and kind of content development perspective. But what was the what was kind of the biggest call it challenge as you struck out on your own? Getting the name out there. It was a struggle at the beginning, but when I was at that certain Long Island law firm, which I now disclose as Meyer Swazi, I had a tough time there getting clients. Their partners didn't want me to talk to their own clients, even though they would get 50% of the fee that I would collect. So at that point, I was writing articles for advisors and TPAs. I said, you know, if I write something, how how do you get referrals? It's just human nature. You do things or favors for people and you'll get it back in return somehow. So let me write articles. And that was the struggle at my own firm. And I had a good talk with Mike Alford from Brightscope when he was at Brightscope. And I, and I met him one day. I was, it was uh, the summer after I first started. I was very disillusioned. And he was at some event at Barry Park City in, in Manhattan. He says, come on over. And I told him my struggle. And he said, you know what? How do we build up Brightscope? We used to you know, post information in the LinkedIn groups when the LinkedIn groups were a big deal. You know, I hired a, a guy who was, in, you know, experienced in social media, got rid of the PR guy who didn't understand what I did. And it really started to grow from there, just writing these articles that advisors and TPAs could give to their clients or potential clients and say, you know what, this Arisa attorney from New York is saying the same things that we are. And, you know, he's you know independent of us and, and voila. And, and people remember when you, you know, it's just human nature. What people remember you when you do favors for people and People remember you when you're not so nice. And, you know, I always have that one motto in life is my, my biggest motto in life is don't be the a-hole. Right. Try to help people out. When you help people right. out, it pays off in the end. Right. It's really the essence of what it means to be a fiduciary. If you think about that, it's it's putting the needs of other people before your own. And that's that, well, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, that, and that's not something that you can train. I think you either have it or you don't. We we see certain people out there in the world that have no empathy for anybody. It's all about themselves. And that's not who I am. And I think that if I had that attitude, I, I would have been dead 10 years ago in business. You, you, right. it's, it, it, the time of plan business, I think that people have to understand is it's a relationship-driven business. You can't be the a-hole because people will talk about you if you are the a-hole. And that that's that's what's happened. Right. I know people right. 12 years ago, they were complaining about that. They still complain about today, even though they've kind of changed. But they remember them from, you know, 12 years ago when they were a TPA and they had a bad reputation, that sort of thing. It, it, it travels. Absolutely. You know, I, I kind of view you as an advocate for the TPA industry. And, and I know when we were kind of talking before we started recording that, you know, that that may not have been the way kind of the TPA space kind of viewed you when you were first kind of out on your own. But talk a little bit about why you're so passionate about the, the TPA side of the business. Obviously, the M&A is impacting the industry kind of across the spectrum, whether it be record keeper consolidation, whether it be, you know, roll ups of advisors and advisory firms. It's happening on the TPA side of the space. I think I just saw that uh, Blue Star sold to, I think it was Security and Meritas. Emeritus. And, and, you know, you, you had a, a several years ago, a census that was with their future plan was really rolling up kind of TPAs and whatnot. But, but talk a little bit about kind of your, your passion for the TPA side of the business. And with these kind of market pressures, you're seeing, I would say in general, still a lot of TPA work in, I would call it more down market where you've, you've got probably more complex kind of plan design and, and testing requirements upmarket, you've seen much more of a, a shift towards kind of the bundled approach. But talk a little bit about your vantage point, having been a TPA and an ERISA attorney and, and what's been happening in that space. You know, the best experience I ever had was working nine years working for TPA firms. I don't think that I'd be half as successful as an ERISA attorney if I didn't have that experience. You kind of I compare it to my great uncle, may rest in peace, who worked in a meatpacking factory. You know, he knew where, you know, they uh, was a meatpacking place that made Sabre hot dogs. And since he helped make the hot dogs, he can tell us, well, you know, you can eat Sabre. You can eat when they made Nathan hot dogs. These are good things to eat because he saw how they were made. Right. And I think that when you work how the sausage is made, right? Yeah, how That'll, the sausages are made. And, and I think when you work for a TPA, you see how things can go awry. And, and when I was in a risk attorney for a TPA, I represented the TPA, and part of my job was putting out fires by the administrators that were working for us because they didn't have the background or the experience. I, I remember years ago, 
talking to one of my administrators. So I said to him, what is the vesting schedule for this matching contribution plan? And he said, seven years. I said, don't want to use his name. But anyway, I said to him, you know, in 2002, we went to a six-year schedule, and this was in 2006. So that's that, That's the sort of thing that you were butting my head up against. So I've always been a bit a big advocate of, of TPAs. I think when I first started out, people thought I was critical of it because I was critical of – I worked for a TPA shop that was a producing TPA. And people forget there was a world before fee disclosure, and in the world before fee disclosure – People were told that if you were using a revenue sharing platform, you were going to pay less in fees when it turns out they weren't. They were actually, at least in my TPA, they were pocketing more money and without fee disclosure, they didn't have to disclose that to the client. And those were the abuses that I were talking about. So from 2010 and 2012, and you're talking about fee disclosure, there are a lot of people, James Holland to me was an advisor from Charlotte, was one of those advocates. And there were other advocates and other TPA firms that believe in fee disclosure before the implementation. And anytime you were, you know, anywhere critical, there was somebody in the industry, a spokesperson for the industry, I'll name his name because he's not there anymore, but David Ray, I think it was his name. And anytime there was a criticism of the 401k business and the TPA business, he would fight back. He didn't like any criticism. But I think that any business can only improve if it's just honest with themselves. In the TPA business, I've been a strong advocate of them because... They are the most important plan provider in my mind. You're a fiduciary. I'm an ERISA attorney. We're pretty good providers, I think, but we're not the most important because the TPA does the bulk of the work. The TPA, you know, the, a good TPA will avoid the errors of a bad TPA. A bad TPA will land the plan sponsor a lot more in trouble than, you know, you and I can combine and, you know, times the 10th power or whatnot. But I've been a strong advocate of the TPA. I think that, you know, too many clients just see it, too many plan sponsors see it as a price point rather than a service. I'll go to the cheapest provider or I'll go to them because they do my payroll and not realize that, you know, plan design is a big deal. Less errors and compliance is a big deal. They, I, mean, that's, I think that that's what they don't stress and that's what they don't focus because they don't know what a TPA does. And I think that that's the problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and obviously, I come at, at it from a little bit different of a perspective. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things I've seen in the industry over the years is that a lack of kind of clear and honest conversations amongst all service providers, roles and responsibilities. I can't tell you how many times throughout my career, you know, I, I picked up an engagement with a plan sponsor and they were convinced that, you know, their record keeper, their TPA was doing a terrible job. And in some cases, they were. In other cases, they weren't. It was like a, a married couple that fight all the time and think they have a terrible marriage, but it's more because they haven't communicated well. And, and a lot of times what I was playing was more of kind of marriage counselor to get in, you know, and, and right from the jump to say, let's all get into a room and let's have a conversation. Because I think what's happening is on the plan sponsor side, you have this certain set of expectations around what your TPA record keeper is supposed to be doing. And they have a whole different set. And because nobody has ever actually led the conversation, there's a lot of finger pointing going back and forth. I think even around what, you know, the most important service provider probably comes down to more of how you define the different roles and responsibilities. Absolutely. From a compliance perspective, it should be the TPA who is, you know, from a technical standpoint, I think leading and being kind of highlighted as, hey, this is this is the key expert around from a compliance perspective. And really the kind of the, you know, to use, I know you're a big baseball fan. My dad worked for the Orioles in the front office for 45 years. I played baseball for a long time. You know, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, he's, you know, they call, said the straw that stirred the drink, right? And so I think when you talk about compliance, testing, things along those lines, absolutely. And operational affairs, which we'll talk about, is, is a much bigger risk for most companies than things like getting sued from a fiduciary breach perspective, especially as you come down market. You know, I think the thing that advisors bring, why I would say in their role is probably the most important service provider is, you know, it really comes down to, I think, probably providing strategic leadership. The one knock I've had on the TPA and record keeper space, or one of the knocks over the years, is that part of the reason I think they are devalued in the eyes of the client is the way that they engage is more of is what I call kind of a tradesperson than an architect. And there's a leadership gap that exists. And I think not all advisors, you look, you get a lot of in this industry, you get a lot of advisors who, quite frankly, 
even with the rise of specialists over the past 10, 15 years, you still have the vast majority of plans where you have advisors and that, quite frankly, don't really know what they're doing and don't add a lot of value. They get paid a lot, but they don't add a lot of value to the equation. But I do think the the elite advisor community that's out there, the specialist, and not every specialist is an elite advisor, is really around providing kind of that that what I would call fiduciary kind of architecture, if you will, and having those conversations and being more of a whether you call it an architect or more of a conductor to kind of make sure that how do you find issues? How do you bring up those honest conversations? In many cases that a plan sponsor may not want to hear, but having the courage to even in the face of resistance or pushback, have meaningful conversations, talk about the things that really matter. And then when issues come up, trying to, to partner and then bring in, it's like being a coach instead of being kind of the star player. And I think a lot of advisors are threatened by TPAs at times Instead of viewing like, hey, when an issue comes up and they come up all the time, having the TPA step in and really letting them kind of be the star of the show in in those areas, if that makes sense. Makes complete sense. First off, again, I, I always get in trouble for what I say, but I always feel like TPAs, I've always said this, most of their marketing and communication stinks. I'd use another word, but it's probably the <sighs> broadcast. It's not very good. I think the communication is lousy. That's why, uh, for, for the most part, I think that that's why, you know, an advisor like you is kind of having to also serve as the ombudsman or the quarterback. Any complaints about what the TPA is doing, it's not directed at the TPA, it's directed at you. <laughs> or if the ERISA attorney is not, you know, returning phone calls, they go to you. They don't go directly. And that's kind of funny that that's human nature. People are passive aggressive. They'd rather go complain to you about the TPA than go to the TPA and complain. It's easier to do it that way. It's it's lazier. It's an interesting business. You know, I, I always say that communication is key. I think to always contact the plan sponsor and to educate them and, and to provide content. That's not what a TPA does, and that's what a TPA should be doing. I've always said that in my life, the relationships that I've had, either business or personal, the number one reason why they failed was the lack of communication. You know, I worked in the school newspaper putting out at college, putting out an issue twice a week. We were up all night, 36 hours straight, twice a week, and we were fighting. And how were we fighting? We were saying stuff about each other behind each other back. And then the pe- person that we told were, were, were telling, you know, we're, we're just, you know, dropping dimes and, and whatnot. And all of a sudden you're at each other's throats and you never really communicated with the people that you were upset with. And that's the nature, I, I think, of the business as well. There's just a lack of communication. I don't think TPAs do a very good job in marketing themselves and saying, you know, this is who we are. This is what we are. And there's also even a lot of them don't even have follow up on an annual census request. They don't really line it out to participate uh, to the plant sponsors in terms of being explicit as to the information that they need. We have so many compensation issues dealing with bonuses. They never bother to talk to the client. By the way, do you pay bonuses? By the way, it's part of your comp definition. Do you allow them to defer out of it? Do you put a match or a profit sharing contribution? Those kind of questions. And, and that's because there's a lack of communication. And, the, and that's why you see a lot of errors. You know, a good TPA relies on information provided by the client. But if it's garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. That goes back to, I think, the, the you know, one of the mantras that, that I've kind of lived by is that the why is more important than the what. And so, you know, you get service providers that they say the what, like we need your census data, but they don't spend the time up front talking about the why. Why is this important and providing context? And, and we expect plan sponsors like this is not their day job. It's not what they do. Right. I, um, I also stayed up 36 hours at, at a stretch in college, but it wasn't working on the school newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I did it twice a week for. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing you talk about that. Another TPA told me about a client that had a payroll provider TPA as their TPA, and they were given the census request, and they said, please identify all the employees that are key employees, and not going into the explanation as to what a key employee is for purposes of a top-heavy test. So this client- Different than an HCE, right? That they- well, not an officer, the whole, the whole, right, right. whole schematic and whatnot. So all of a sudden, the client- checked everybody off as a key employee, including the $30,000 female cleaner of the office because she was key to the business. business, Or the payroll provider said, you know, by the way, you're top heavy. Because again, it's relying on incorrect information and they never really bother to ask the questions or provide the context for the client to, you know, determine who a key employee is, was correct, correct, you know. Yeah. Yeah, And I also think, you know, it's interesting that you talk about, and and this is, 
you know, it's really a, a change in mindset. And, and I try to talk to advisors because I've kind of transitioned, obviously, most people know career-wise just and got out of running an RIA. And, you know, I have a ton of conversations, it feels like every week with advisors who are trying to get more involved in this space, trying to be a resource to them in, in some way, shape or form. But the shift in mindset, you know, a lot of times I think why there's finger pointing goes back to what you said, where dropping dimes on one another is at the end of the day, most service providers, whether that's an advisor, whether that's a TPA, whether that's a record keeper, I think there's probably a lack of ownership in terms of when mistakes are made. And everybody cares more about keeping the business. I did a a video a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn just around, you know, is your goal to make a difference or is it to just keep the business? I mean, if it's to keep the business, people tend to think that I don't want to take the blame here. I want to pass the buck. I want to take somebody else, you know, throw them under the bus thinking that, you know, that's going to kind of protect their turf, if you will, as opposed to, you know, what plan sponsors, I've, I've never met a plan sponsor that said, you know what, I started a business because I wanted to be a fiduciary or because I wanted to sponsor a 401k plan. At the end of the day, what they care about is, are we doing a good job? Do we have any issues? If we do have issues, like what do we need to do to fix them so I can get back to running my business? And so, you know, I do think the industry in general, you have these kind of like subcultures. I've been really impressed by the advisory industry over the past few years of, and especially the newer gen of advisor that is much more kind of collaborative. When, when I started my career at Morgan Stanley years and years ago, like the first week, you know, I heard somebody say, you know, the key to this business is the attitude that what's mine is mine and what's yours should be mine. And so not a great way to kind of run, run your business, but, but thinking about the ecosystem of service providers and figuring out actually when you work together, and that may mean that you have some hard conversations, you know, instead of throwing the TPA under the bus, or if a plan sponsor calls and says, hey, we're having this issue, trying to get involved and even having a conversation with the TPA, like, hey, look, I want you to know, like, this is kind of the feedback. So here's what I think you should do. Here's how I would approach it. Like, let's get on a call and let's work this out. Because if we do that, that's going to create goodwill for all of us and deliver a better experience for the plan sponsor instead of us, you know, trying to kind of uh, beat each other down. I used to tell plan sponsor or, or, you know, service providers all the time, like, look, be more focused on the client than you are in the relationship with me. And I'm going to do the same. And if we do that and we try to deliver a good experience, it's going to be good for it. There's a virtuous cycle here. So instead of, of this kind of like, let's try to protect turf, how do we really be fiduciary minded, be others focused, think about what's doing best for the client. And that may mean stepping up and saying, you know what, we made a mistake. We're sorry. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. It's, it's my, you know, this was a failure of, of me and my team, but here's what we're going to do to fix it. In many cases, that can actually create more client loyalty when you own up to your mistakes. And then you take the next step of, hey, we're going to make this right. That creates more loyalty with clients in most cases, at least I've found in my career. Would you agree with that? I agree with it. You know, so much of what we deal with with retirement plan providers, it just could you know, be broken down to just simple human nature, how people are. And I think that that's one of the benefits of my practice. You try to figure out what, how other people are going to think or do or whatnot. I call it, you know, game theory. Last week on Columbus Day, I was driving to get my mail. I was driving with my son. And the left you must side. have a long driveway, Ari. No, it's... This it's, must be good to you. Because I, I have a mail drop. Yeah, Garden City sounds nicer than Oceanside. So anyway, I got I got hit. The woman in the right lane just came into my lane, just hit me. She followed me to the parking lot, which was next to the Garden City Police Department. And all she did, the first thing she did was, I'm sorry. Mm. She admitted that she was wrong. I didn't yell. I said, you know what? It happens. She stayed at the accident scene, filed a report. I took it to the collision place. Her insurance said, we're going to pay for it. That's it. Had she come to me right after hitting me, she would have said, it's your fault. You veered into my lane. That would have set me starting to yell. Right. But the fact that she was able to eliminate the, the problem by just simply admitting fault. And I think that so many times with plan providers, especially on the TPA side, if they would just admit that they made a mistake, that would just take the air out of the balloon, 
So the client would all of a sudden not have this, you know, agitated state. I've had so many issues with TPAs representing clients, including the former TPA I used to work with. There'd be so many excuses as to why a law firm client, the administrator who had 20 years experience never bothered to understand that if two of the employees had the same last name as a name partner, maybe they would be a key employee for purposes of a top heavy test. And, And, you know, not, not, you know, continue that error for two, three years. But, you know, the TPA's complaint, my old bosses was it's the fault of the plan sponsor because they didn't reveal the information. Well, a plan sponsor doesn't know what a key employee is. He never told them. Yeah. Or attribution rules or anything like that. And it's just, it's just human nature. They don't, people don't want to accept responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, I have relatives, they would rather die than apologize to me. To me, an apology could mean something really big, but it could be nothing. It just means, you know, I feel for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel this. Well, don't say I'm sorry you feel this way because that's that's, never condition your apologies if you're going to apologize. That's even worse than not apologizing. I'm sorry if I offended you. That, that's a kind way of saying, you know what? You're really sensitive and uh, whatever I said, I, I really didn't. I, I, it wasn't offensive, but it was offensive to you. Don't, don't condition your apologies. Just say you're sorry. You're going to fix it. And, that, and that's it. And, and we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. Even advisors. And I would throw that out there as well as a lot yeah. of advisors think they sit above the fray. And advisors, everybody, like these these plans are super complex. I had, yeah, yeah. Here's the funny story: with an advisor of not apologizing. So, an advisor told a client to move out of a stable value fund and, and switching providers, and there was a market value adjustment. You know, the, the advisor says, I'll, "I'll pay for the error." And then, when the advisor found out it was like a twenty thousand or a forty thousand dollar error, all of a sudden they weren't returning the client's phone calls and then fired the client. You know, right. people will go out of their way, including firing a client to avoid apologies uh, because they think, you know, all of a sudden they're going to get sued by Jerry Schlicker or something. I don't know. Or somebody's going to crack down on them. They're not asking for your blood. They're just asking for, you know, some sympathy and, you know, being told that things are going to get worked out and going to get fixed. That, that's all they want. Yeah. One of the things you, you, you talk about and is interesting. There's a lot of, in my opinion, fear mongering around the F word of you know, fiduciary and fiduciary liability. And and you mentioned Jerry Schlichter, who most listeners know that uh, in June was a guest on the podcast. And we talked about the economics of, of ERISA litigation. And, you know, he, he thought that that litigation would come down from call it the mega space to the higher end of the large space down to about $200 million plans. He felt like was kind of the, what I would consider the floor of litigation. Cause it just, the economics for plaintiff's attorneys don't make sense uh, when you start to get below that. And, and interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that SeaWorld got sued and they had about a $300 million plan. And so, you know, he was, yeah, I think he was right about that trend coming down. The bigger risk for most plan sponsors, and it, it frustrates me when you get, especially advisors in the smaller end of the market that try to scare plan sponsors around you know, you're going to get sued or you're going to, you need to hire me, you know, because you've got all this personal liability. And it's not to say that they don't, but the probability of being sued for fiduciary breaches in the smaller end of the market. And I would say, let's just call that, you know, a hundred million dollar plus or a hundred million dollar plans and below, certainly as you get, get further down market, is it possible on the margin to get sued? Sure. And, 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 I think what, what's much more common in the smaller in the market, if, if plan sponsors get sued and the DOL loves to tout this in the press releases every year, but that's more around embezzlement, fraud, something along those lines. The bigger risk is not litigation. I think the bigger risk is operational failures, which are far more common with retirement plans and especially smaller retirement plans where the plan sponsor doesn't really understand. They don't read their plan document. They don't understand things like definition of compensation or eligibility, and they don't have the processes internally that aligns what they're doing business-wise with what their document says they're supposed to be doing. And I, I that's where you can really get into expensive fixes going through a correction program because you know you 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 had an operational failure. God forbid the DOL or the IRS finds the error before you do under some type of audit, always going to be a bad outcome. But talk a little bit about that risk of operational failure and some of the common ones that you typically see. And from an advisor perspective, how would you advise or or counsel advisors to be talking about 
Should they just push that off to the TPA? Or what do you think advisors should do as part of their value when it comes to the operational compliance of plans? In terms of the selling of fear, I mean, you are correct. I have a better chance of getting hit by lightning than some of these smaller plans getting sued. I mean, that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is is that DOL and IRS audits scare me more than anything else. And the DOL audits and the IRS audits can be as a result of randomness or an error or a lot of times with the Department of Labor and employee complaint. You know, I have a certain family member, I'm not going to name who, worked for a company, was let go through COVID and whatnot, and had issues with the distribution. She got part of her distribution. And then after the end of the year, she got another distribution. But that distribution came from one of those companies, I think Penchex or whatnot, where it said, you you are a missing participant. Here's your money minus the $30 distribution fee. And and my relative, who has me as an ERISA attorney, saying, this is sound not kind of right. And I said, well, you know, you're not going to sue about it. There's this local DOL office now on Barrack Street. They used to be closer uh, to Bowling Green. They were uh, make a complaint. And there was a six-month process of dealing with a distribution. And, you know, the questioning is, how did you say this was a missing participant when you gave that woman a check six months earlier? And that's how it starts. I mean, that's something as simple as that. That puts you all on the DOL's radar. So this client, uh, this plan sponsor, has issues. And the answers to the DOL agent weren't really good. Just the DOL agent did as best as they could by this uh, relative who's a former plan participant. But they're forever going to be on the DOL's radar. Like the thread on the sweater that you pull and the whole thing starts to unravel. Yeah, there's a file on you. There's a file on you. So I, I believe that if you've been targeted and made a complaint about, chances are you're going to get audited later down the line. If you don't have an ERISA bond, uh, I'm sure that's a good chance you're going to get audited. You know, varying mistakes over the years. You say that you had uh, late deferrals and the DOL says we don't have a copy of you filing uh, under our voluntary fiduciary compliance program, you're going to get audited or you're going to get a letter that says, you know what, we see you had late deferrals, but we don't have an application from you for the voluntary fiduciary compliance program. Those are, you know, the relevant, you know, issues. Those are what scares you. And as an advisor, you know, they have to realize that it's the TPAs causing, you know, a good chunk of the errors. It's probably 80-20. Plant sponsors are responsible for probably 20% of the errors, maybe a little bit more. And realize that, you know, it, it's kind of like a problem that you neglect over time if you don't treat it. It's like, uh, you know. Uh, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? mold in your house. The mold is only going to grow and grow and consume the entire house. And you have to, gonna, you know, knock down the house. An error that's detected when it's created or right around that time is far easier to correct than something that's discovered years later on the plan sponsor's own. Or usually what happens is it's detected when there's a change of TPA or when there's a deal with an IRS audit. And I will tell you this much, if it's caught on an audit, get the grace of a, you know, a, a voluntary compliance program. You don't get the grace of self-correcting it and, and you don't get the grace of some of the easier solutions that could have been used when you correct it. The same thing when you have an ADP failure, you have so much more ways to fix it when it's discovered rather than three, four years down the line. You can't refund, you know, to HCEs four years later, you're out of time. Right. Do you think in a lot of cases, uh, this has kind of been my experience, have you seen it as well, is that there's a lot of plan sponsors that are penny wise and pound foolish. They think, you know, it, oh, there's going to be a cost to fix this. Like, I don't I don't want to fix it. Or you've got service providers like the example you used before where it really is their error, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to stroke a check to fix it. Do you think a lot of the reason that errors don't get resolved in a timely fashion when they're found is just because they're being penny wise and pound foolish and they want to kind of take the path of least resistance and kind of ask for uh, forgiveness instead of permission? About a week ago, I wrote an article and you were kind enough to send the article back and you said, here are these typos. And I appreciated that. I hope that's, I hope that's, I hope that's okay. I'm a bit of a... I, I, I'm, not, I'm not offended by that because I made the error and, and it drives me nuts. And so... I could have read that article a thousand times. You read it probably one or twi- once or twice and you found the error is pretty – because I wrote it, I couldn't detect that error. And I think if I re- would have read it a thousand times because you, you just – when you write something, you're like a fast reader. You're not going to detect that error. You're never going to find it. 
And the TPAs that make errors, most of the time, since they made that error, they're not going to detect their own error. Mm-hmm. You need to kind of check and balance to determine whether an error is made. Usually, most of the time, they're not going to realize it on their own. And if they're they do, psychologically, that, where it's like you, you kind of part of your brain closes off. We all right. do it right on the work that we do, and right. and. But you you realize it over time. You know, most of the time they don't realize their own error, and if they do realize their own error, they don't want to bring it to the attention of the plan sponsor. If they do, it's just human nature. Nobody again we goes back to that human nature. We don't want to accept responsibility. Right. Okay, right. Let, let, let's forget about it. Let's see how that plans out, and maybe everybody will forget about it. And right. we never forget about it. It's so, so, it, it's like burying a body. So it's eventually going to get discovered. Right. You so much of all the transition that's taking place in the industry through consolidation and M&A, which is obviously hitting every part of the business that we talk about. It's it's obviously in the advisor space, now the TPA space as well, a ton of record keeper consolidation. One of the things I think advisors really need to get clear about, and, and maybe we get into this a little bit later, is being clear about who they partner with. You know, it's it's... What's interesting in this business, you said it earlier, is that it's a relationship business. And so you could get two advisors, for instance, and you bring up, you know, name one of the record keepers. And one could say they're the worst record keeper ever. They're terrible. And the other could say they're phenomenal. And so much of it comes down to personal experience, right? Maybe the one that says they're phenomenal, most likely they have, you know, a lot of relationships with that provider. So they're getting they're getting more resources for their clients. They're getting consistent people assigned to their clients so that there's continuity from that perspective. And so it's it's one of the most important decisions, I think, for the next three to five to 10 years for advisors is choose your service provider relationships very carefully. I think this is incredibly true when you start to look at what's happening from the wellness perspective and you know, with record keepers who are rolling out wellness services and really want to own that participant relationship, which has historically, you know, been what, you know, advisors want to do. And so picking your partners wisely, what are the things you think an advisor should look for from a, you know, qualities, not just services, because that's, that's really, you know, everybody says they do the same things, but what kind of qualities should they be looking for in service provider relationships, but more specifically, TPA relationships? Well, number one, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I used to see advisors do that. Okay, all of a sudden they like one TPA, and then all of a sudden they're going to move all their clients to that TPA just because they like that TPA. I think number one, I want to say is I, I used to see it a lot more often in the past, advisors deciding they are going to dictate to what TPAs the client is going to use. And I've seen that blow up in the advisor's face because the client liked a certain TPA and moving to another TPA provided less services. It just blew up in the advisor's face and the advisor lost that business. Or your contact leaves and goes to a different firm and now you're stuck with, you know, you're stuck with somebody. I use one particular example. We, uh, when I worked at a TPA, we had an advisor who was a very good advisor, great advisor, moved a lot of the plants to us. And there was one client, was an architectural client, and uh, was an architectural firm. And the previous TPA did a lot more work than we were willing to do. And the HR director was upset about that change. And she was made aware, she made us aware that she was unhappy with this change. And she was, uh, you know, upset the entire time and was looking for any way to get rid of us. And the way she got rid of us is she had another TPA talk to them about a KSOP, which is really a K with an ESOP feature. Rather than send me, who knew what they were talking about, to Tennessee to talk to the client, they sent my boss, who was also an ERISA attorney. An advisor, but really wasn't practicing ERISA, and he just knew only knew what I told him. He went to the meeting, obviously didn't know what a case op was. We got fired. The advisor got fired. That's what happens. But I, I think it's important for an advisor to understand what a TPA does. Look for quality rather than what's easier for them. What is best for the client? And I don't see it as much anymore. I used to see it ten years ago, where you'd have namely uh, a broker pushing uh, clients to specific providers, specific TPAs, because it was all about their trail and how they got paid. Oh, they're using such and such platform. Oh, it's easier for me to get paid. Is that the best solution for the client? I don't know. A lot of times it was, a lot of times it wasn't. Or I'm getting paid to move a block of business over on the front end. <laughs> or, you know, uh, I'm working with a certain payroll provider and they, they give me leads to plans that don't have an advisor and I got I to pay them back or something. I think they have to realize that the needs of the client over, you know, overcome their needs and look to quality. It doesn't have to be bigger is not better. I, I'm still convinced of that. 
I'm sure there are a lot of chicken littles in this business that think we're only going to have one day three or four TPAs. It's going to be like the soda business where we have Coke and Pepsi and and and, and maybe Dr. Pepper, Snapple, and, uh, and that's it. It's not going to work like that. It's still going to be room for the small TPAs. Change creates opportunity. Uh, it's just a matter of taking charge of that opportunity. If company A, that big conglomerate, buys a, another huge business, as, as we've seen in the past, what happens? We know business history very well. They have a whole process of merging and eliminating redundant positions. So a lot of the people that we like and know are going to lose their jobs. They're going to streamline and, and, and get rid of the businesses that aren't as profitable. There'll be lines of the retirement plan business that company A, this huge conglomerate, has been buying everybody left and right, buying all the insurance companies. They're going to say, you know what? This is a profitable part of the business for us. We're going to just say goodbye, go somewhere else, that sort of thing. And that still creates opportunity for everybody else. But I, I think the advisor, and, and that's been what I've been trying to do for the last 11, 12 years, telling them what a TPA does, telling them you know, why plane design is a huge deal, why picking somebody just because they're cheaper is a bad idea, the nature of you know finding a TPA that makes very few compliance errors, that sort of thing, and looking at what's best for the client. I think those are w- what you need to know. And, and I think it's important for the advisor to realize, you know what, there isn't a solution fit or business that is the right fit for everybody. What was great for that $100 million plan may be abysmal for that $1 million plan, just because the pricing nature of the business and, and, and the features of the business or whatever it is. And, and just realize that. I think the beauty of this business is I learn something new every day. I don't know everything. And I'm not going to try to pretend I know everything. It's constantly changing. It's constantly moving. You know, we see that with the uh, ESG proposals that the Biden White House proposed, you know, and, and a year earlier, you know, we we're being told that ESG is going to be, you know, thrown out by the DOL. It's constantly changing and we have to roll with the punches. That goes back to having the emotional intelligence that service providers need to have. The mistake, I think, and I see advisors do this all the time, is they feel like they need to know the answer to every single question. And so a lot of times what they do is in a meeting, instead of saying, you know what, I think I, I, I know the answer, but I'm not quite sure. Let me go back and double check and I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with you. What they do is they, they, they riff and they wind up giving bad information and then they have to backtrack that or God forbid they give wrong information and the plan sponsor goes down a path that they shouldn't be going down as opposed to I've always found that clients don't need you to have the answer to every question sitting in the meeting. What they want is they want you to have the ability to go find the correct answers because at the end of the day, they want to make the right decision. And so, you know, too often just the ego driven nature of the business is we want to say, you know, it takes a high level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence to be willing to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. The benefit of that is when, and I always used to love to come across situations that I didn't know about because I would go research it, find the correct answer, set that expectation for the client that I don't know off the top of my hand. I can't confirm this is the answer, but let me go do some research for you. But then you kind of have a mind of an elephant. That's how you build mastery over time is once you run into it with one client, it's invariably going to come up with another client at some point in time and you can address it then. Asked about what advisors should look for in TPAs. How can advisors be better partners to TPA firms? I just want to answer your question. First of all, the the whole, I think the advisors need to stick to what they know. My favorite story about the retirement plan business, one of the favorite stories is best TPA salesman I ever knew was a guy by the name of Rich Larita, who I've written quite a bit. I've worked with him for two TPAs. Rich Larita was the greatest relationship person I ever knew. However, he couldn't, I used to joke, he couldn't spell 401k if I had spotted him before the O, the one, and the K. <laughs> and he knew that. And so he would, you know, if there was a question with a potential client, they would bring me to the meetings. And I, I think that, that that experience helped me start my own practice, being able to talk to clients and take these ERISA subjects and bring it to a, a language that people can understand. Stick to what you know. Retirement plans isn't a closed book exam. If you don't know, don't wing it. Don't give out incorrect information. You know, I've done it over the years. I, I try not to. I said, you know, I'll get back to you if I'm not 100% sure on something. 
I replaced an arrest attorney at Geller Group who who wasn't very good, who gave incorrect information. And you know, when you're the new arrest attorney and you're trying to correct it and trying to protect the people that sign your check, it's a it's a difficult process. But nature of the business is that uh, you should you know really stick to what you know and and just in terms of working with TPAs, seeing how they could you know augment each other. Again, it's a relationship-driven business. You have a great relationship with TPA as an advisor. The TPA may recommend you, uh, uh, refer you out to potential clients. And again, it goes boils down to that basic that Rich Larita taught me many years ago. It's a relationship-driven business. And that's how you generate clients, and that's how you generate goodwill. Rich Larita passed away 14 years ago, and I will run into advisors that still speak of him so highly. And you know, even when I do these conferences around the country, a bit of Rich Larita is in those events you know, developing relationships with people. I think it's really a way to help each other out, you know, develop these uh, deep-rooted relationships that go very, very far because you never know how it pays off in the end. You know, you could speak to a TPA and never, and the client didn't hire them. And then 10 years later, you, you struck up a normal conversation with them and, and you develop a relationship further that's mutually conducive to, you know, working together. Right. Yeah, and 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 those relationships. Even thinking about it with plan sponsors as well, I can't tell you how many times that had a plan sponsor client or a, a you know an HR director or CFO that left the company and went to a new company and dragged us along with them over time. So yeah, it, uh, it, relationships it, it, they compound, right? They compound over time. They compound over time, and they people come into your life and out one way or another. But they remember you, and they remember you well. I, there was nothing. There's nothing worse. I used to hate when I started my own practice, and you go to these mini, these little small business networking, and you're meeting people, and all they want to do is sell you something. They don't right. want to develop a relationship with you. So I, I, I was going to have an event at City Field, like a networking event at a Mets game, and all this guy. Uh, it was a Zoom call, and I had one of the logos for my conferences. I, I think it was for St. Louis or whatever it was. And the guy says, you know, that's a really good logo. It would really look good on a wine bottle. And that, that's his business, taking I don't know what kind of wine it was and slapping my logo on it. I'm like, A, it's probably bad wine. B, I don't like giving away free stuff. C, who am I going to give it to? Everything now is Zoom. I don't really see that many people. I mean, well, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That that's people who just don't see that, you know, life is a relationship driven business. I stopped going to those networking events pretty early in my career because you meet people and they'd be like, you talk to them for two minutes and be like, Oh, let me refer you into a client. And I'm like, anybody that would refer me into somebody after talking to me for two minutes, I don't trust their judgment. Well, I, I had a, I had a PR guy at the beginning that I hired, and he obviously didn't know what I did. And he's like, oh, why don't you network with these negligence attorneys that I represent? And I said, how am I ever going to get clients from them? You obviously don't understand what I do. And I eventually right. fired him because right. over that and, and because he wanted me to rent a space from his client who was a TPA. And I said, that benefits you. It doesn't benefit me. Right. I'm one of the, as we kind of wrap, you mentioned these events. I want to get to that in a minute. But before that, you know, this this role of 316 administrator, obviously PEPs are, are something that gets talked about a lot. But talk a little bit about kind of the 316 role and, and from this perspective, because the challenge in the industry, you know, years ago, it was much easier to differentiate. On the advisory side, the story I told 15 years ago, in some ways was a lot easier to tell because it was very differentiated. It was also harder to tell because it was so differentiated. But now across the business, you look on somebody's website and you mentioned quality before, like everybody says they do the same things. One of the things that I've come across, and this is in advisory contracts, it's in record keeping contracts, it's in TPA contracts, is that not all, let's say from a 316 perspective, not all 316 services are the same. And so much when plan sponsors are hiring service providers across the spectrum. Talk a little bit about that 316 role and how it maybe isn't always what it seems. It's the same way in the advisory world. People think, you know, most the, the vast majority of advisors are fiduciaries for investment advice, but plan sponsors think they're a fiduciary around, let's call it fees or plan design. It's just not the, it's not the case if you actually dig in and read the contract. If they're not taking discretion, you know, let's say over, you know, administration as an example, 
What have you seen with kind of the different flavors of 316 out in the marketplace? One of the unpleasant facts of the retirement plan business that nobody wants to talk about that I will is you and I, when you were, uh, you know, had your own RIA firm, you had a license, you had, you know, registration requirements. I'm an attorney. I had to pass a state bar. I passed three state bars. I still pay three state dues. I don't even know why, but just because it was a great thrill to pass three state bar exams. But anyway, we're licensed. A TPA is not licensed. Anybody can be a TPA. And and we've seen that. A guy by the name of Jeff Ritchie, who was barred from the SEC business for fraud, set up a TPA shop and a 316 business and stole $15 million, I think, from a bunch of his clients. Right. And that's the problem of the 316 business, meaning it could be anything and everything. So, you know, you can have a full scope 316 i think i just created a new term that you know analyzes payroll and 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 deals with distributions and hands out notices or you can have a stripped down 316 model where all they do is really sign the 5500 and that's it and the plant sponsor doesn't know that and that's i think that that's a, always been a problem in this business it could be all or nothing or uh, in between. And that's a problem for a client that thinks that they're getting one thing and they're getting quite another. And that, that used to, you know, less so these days, but it's still a problem in the retirement plan business. The client believes that they are getting a service and the contract and the services by the particular provider say otherwise. 316 administration to me, it's, it's not the right fit all for all clients. There are a lot of plan sponsors that don't want to give up that control. There are plan sponsors that want you know, maybe just help on signing the 5,500. There may be the plan sponsor that wants the full, they want someone else to automate it for them and and, and take the responsibility of it. And that's, I, I think that that's a problem in the business that we don't talk about. I think there should be delineation or if I say regulation, people can get, you know, go down my throat. But I, I think there needs to be a little bit more transparency in the services they provide. I, even, even on a 338 level too, as well, like you pointed out in terms of, do they provide fiduciary advice to the, to the participants or don't they? And I remember years ago, there was an advisor that touted that they were a limited scope 338. I don't know what that is, you know, <laughs> or the producing TPA that was an RIA that said that they were not a fiduciary to the plan sponsor, even though they were an RIA. And that's the general nature. They fit the definition, the old definition of what a, a fiduciary is for the DOL. Do you do that? Do So in your practice, do you, do you help plan sponsors review and kind of negotiate you know, oh, absolutely. You know, the, the problem is, is that plan sponsors just take that contract and just sign it. You see too many errors and problems along the way. I just got into a huge range war with a certain TPA over termination costs that I had to report them to the DOL. You have issues with, you know, surrender charges. You have issues with termination notices. You have issues, again, being promised services that uh, being told one thing by the salesperson and, and the promises are not in the contract. Right. Or, or the fees are not, you know, explicit or, or, or easy to understand. Yeah. That's my that's a big knock I have on disclosure. You know, we think disclosure is the end all be all and disclosure is just information. It's not context. You know, you could you can get, you know, I think one of the most important roles of the advisor certainly now and moving forward is is really, you know, as a kind of chief context officer, if you will, to help make sense of the complexity. So key disclosure was the greatest thing that ever happened to this business. And we have so much more to go on that because no. I still think that, you know, if I have to spend like an hour reading a fee disclosure notice, to me, that's a problem. To me, I think what it would have been worked well is the DOL said, you know what, we want this model form or model summary. Kind of, I, I like the Federal Truth and Lending Act notice right. where it tells you exactly, this is the percentage interest rate, this is the APR, these are the payments, and this, this, and that. And I wish the TPAs are never going to please themselves. They've never shown that they will. You have an industry where, you know, you have a thousand TPAs, let's say, and 1,500 opinions. So they can never get anywhere in, in, in policing themselves. Right. So they would need the DOL to maybe take another look at fee disclosure and say, you know what, you got your 10-page summary, but maybe you should delineate it and explain it in just one page if you can. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about that. I remember when, when the form CRS regs came out and to try to, to make it more of like a plain, plain English document for RIAs. And I won't name the firm, but it was a big wirehouse. And it was 
their forms here. That's just like 150 pages. And I said, you know, if you need 150 pages to disclose all the potential conflicts that you have within your business, you might not want to work with them. But uh, I think they re- the reason they gave 150 pages to confuse the client because the client's going to stop reading at page three. Right. If they get to page three. Right. That's a highly engaged client. Yeah, exactly. So as we wrap up, you know, one of the, the really unique things uh, about you, I think, on the marketing end is, you know, you, I think, especially during COVID as well. But but you talk a little bit just briefly about these kind of unique baseball themed events that you do and what they are and and what gave you the idea and why, why you decided to do them. Well, the running joke, why did I start with that? I think the running joke was I was no longer being invited to speak at national events. And all of a sudden, you know, we have like five or six well-known risk attorneys, but for, for the longest time now, they only seem to invite one person and, and it's not Fred Reese or it's, and it's not Marsha, but it's just a running joke. And I said, you know what, let me have my own events. And more importantly, I was at one of the big national events and I was surprised like how much people, how much plan providers paid for like, you know, a big space in the presentation hall, whatever they call that, the break room, whatever. Right. And I said, you know, let me have my own events. Let me go. And uh, I, I thought like a, a, like a idea of a Comic-Con thing. And I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. And I said, well, why don't I have it at City Fields? You know, go to these, all these baseball parks and have a memorable event that people are going to, uh, obviously advisors are going to remember, plan providers are going to remember. How many times we've been to industry events and we don't remember anything about it, except maybe it was at, you know, the local Marriott and they gave us rubber chicken to eat and there's some presentations by the DCIO. Let's take that and, and let's have an event at a stadium, uh, you know, city field. More of an experience, an experience. Okay, if you more will. memorable experience. Let's bring in an athlete. The first one was Dwight Gooden and the first one was well attended. And then I did a second one at Wrigley field. And then, you know, we started to do quite a few of those in 19. I did nine of them. 2020, I was going to do six to nine. And there was this little thing called COVID. And this year we, uh, in September, I rescheduled the events that I had in 2020 for St. Louis, Minnesota and Houston, Houston was was had a decent attendance. The other ones, obviously, you know, it, it's hard to have attendance during COVID. I still think that that's going to be something. Forget just me. I mean, you know, there are people who have events. Fifteen hundred people show up, and when five hundred people show up, that's a problem. Holding events isn't, you know, <laughs> the biggest money getter of my business. So I'll be I, I'd be okay if I, I no longer ran them. I, I like running them because it's. You know, meeting people, developing relationships, and, and going to ballparks. Excuse me to go to Kansas City. Why was I ever going to go to Kansas City? I was able to go to Kansas City. Next year, you know, we're lining cities up, and it's based on cost and, and based on, obviously, where I haven't been to for a ball game. So, you know, we'll be on to Miami, and I think we'll be going to New Orleans and other cities around the country, and you, you just want to have it. You know, eventually, we'll try to get to Baltimore, Washington. You know, these are fun events. You get to meet a lot of ball players, go to a game, and develop relationships that uh, you know is beneficial not only to me, beneficial to the advisor, beneficial to the plan providers that sponsor these events. And you know, I didn't want a event that's going to break the back of the plan provider. That even if there was low attendance, they don't feel like they got cheated. They got something for their for their buck. Right. Right. Well, we'll, we'll in the show notes, I'll make sure to to link out uh, maybe to to. Some of the things, if, if you've got information about yeah, them as well. Yeah, go to that foreignkside.com, that foreignkside.com. It has all the links. I think we have the event up for Las Vegas, up for January. And then the following week, I'm doing a virtual event on Zoom, which we did last year, which was very successful. So Good, good. So one of the things I like to ask in closing of all the guests is, what's the single best piece of advice that you could give to fiduciaries about how to become a better, more effective, smarter fiduciary. Always realize you have something more to learn and not be arrogant about it. Just realize that there's so much you don't know. Even as a risk attorney, there's so much I still don't know and uh, realize that, you know, it's a constantly changing business and you, you learn something new every day. At least I do. Good advice. Good advice. Well, where can people go to kind of connect with you? Again, I'll put all this in the show notes, but where they can connect, stay up to date with some of the things you're doing that you're working on. That 41kside.com for all the events, the Rosenbaum Law Firm for the blog that has a lot of the events. If you go to JD Supra and you type in my name, you'll get all the articles that all the plant providers throughout the years have been using to generate business. And those those really work well, especially when there are less typos. Awesome. Awesome. 
Well, I really appreciate it. All right. It's been a really fun conversation. I appreciate all all the things that you've done over the years throughout the industry and and really being a voice of saying a lot of the things that bringing up meaningful conversations and, and pointing out not just what's right in the business, but also, as you mentioned, we haven't arrived. There's a lot of work to be done. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate being here with you. <laughs> Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Ari Rosenbaum. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.